Part nineteen of the Chronicles of Crime by Camden Pelham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part nineteen. John Carr, executed for forgery. This offender was born of respectable parents who gave him a good education in the north of Ireland. Having gone to Dublin at the age of sixteen years, he soon afterwards entered into business as a wine merchant, but being uncontrolled, he fell into bad habits and company, and was compelled to give up his trade. An associate inviting him to join him at Kilkenny, he proceeded thither by coach, and seeing a lady in the conveyance, the elegance of her appearance and manners impressed him with an idea that she was of rank. He determined, if possible, to profit by the opportunity afforded him. He handed her into the inn, and, a proposal being made that the company should sup together, it was agreed to on all hands, and while the supper was preparing, Carr applied himself to the coachman to learn the history of the young lady, but all the information he could obtain was that he had taken her up at Dublin, and that she was going to the spa at Mallow. He was determined, however, to become better acquainted with her, and prevailed on the company to repose themselves the next day at Kilkenny, to take a view of the Duke of Ormond's seat, and the curiosities of the town. This proposal being acceded to, the evening was spent in the utmost harmony and good humour, and the fair stranger even then conceived an idea of making a conquest of Mr. Carr, from whose appearance she was induced to suppose that he was a man of distinction. It was now diamond-cut diamond, and in the morning the fair incognita dressed herself to great advantage, not forgetting the ornament of jewels which she wore in abundance, so that, when she entered the room, Carr was astonished at her appearance. She found the influence she had over him, and resolved to afford him an early opportunity of speaking his sentiments, and while the company were walking in the gallery of the Duke of Ormond's palace, an occasion presented itself which was not lost by either party. The lady at first affected displeasure at so explicit a declaration, but soon assuming a more affable deportment, she told him that she was an English woman of rank, that his person was not disagreeable to her, and that, if he was a man of fortune, and the consent of her relations could be obtained, she should not be averse to listening to his addresses. She further said that she was going to spend part of the summer at Mallow, where his company would be agreeable, and he followed her to that place, contrary to the advice of his friend, who had formed a very unfavourable opinion of the lady's character. It is needless to say that the company of so refined and elegant a person was not to be kept without some expenses, which were not of a very moderate character, and the difficulties in which our hero had already placed himself were in no wise diminished by his new connection. He remained with her, however, until the end of the season induced them to return to Dublin, and then a trip to England was proposed, preparatory to the final steps being taken to complete the nuptial arrangements. The gallantry and wits of the gentlemen were sorely tested to procure the requisite funds for the trip, but he at length succeeded in obtaining such a sum as he and the lady deemed sufficient. The passage only remained to be secured, and the too credulous sharper was employed in obtaining it, but in his absence the lady shipped all the effects on board a vessel bound for Amsterdam, and, having dressed herself in a man's apparel, she embarked and sailed, leaving Carr to regret his ill-judged credulity. Thus reduced to want, he went to London, and, having enlisted as a foot-soldier, he was discharged after several years' service. He subsequently entered as a marine, 
but soon afterwards came to London again, and opened a shop in Hog Lane, St. Giles. He now married a girl, who he thought had money, but soon discovering her poverty, he abandoned her, and removed to Short's Gardens, where he entered into partnership with a cork-cutter. But having obtained the promise of support from his partner's customers, he set upon his own account, and was tolerably successful, though his passion for gambling prevented his retaining any part of the produce of his business. His new companions at the gaming-table, having an eye to their own profit, offered to procure him a wife of fortune, though they knew he had a wife living, and actually contrived to introduce him to a young lady of property, with whom a marriage would probably have taken place, but that one of them, struck with remorse of conscience, developed the affair to her father, and frustrated the whole scheme. Being now again thrown upon his own resources, he engaged himself as a porter to a merchant, but while in this condition, his master having entrusted him with a cheque for sixty pounds, he procured it to be cashed, and having spent the money in the lowest debauchery, he again entered as a marine. There being something in his deportment superior to the vulgar, he was advanced to the rank of sergeant, in which he behaved so well that his officers treated him with considerable favour. The vessel in which he sailed was of considerable power, and taking a merchant ship richly laden, and soon afterwards several smaller vessels, the prize-money accounted to a considerable sum. This gave Carr an idea that very great advantages might be obtained by privateering, and having procured a discharge, he entered on board a privateer, and was made master-at-arms. In a few days the privateer took two French ships, one of which they carried to Bristol, and the other into the harbour of Poole, and refitting their ship they sailed again, and in two days took a French privateer, and gave chase to three others, which they found to have been English vessels belonging to Falmouth, which had been captured by a French privateer. These they retook, and carried them into Falmouth, in their passage to which place they made prize of a valuable French ship, the produce of which contributed to enrich the crew. On their next trip they saw a ship in full chase of them, on which they prepared for a vigorous defence, and an action soon after taking place many hands were lost by the French, who at length attempted to shear off, but were taken after a chase of some leagues. The commander of the English privateer, being desperately wounded in the engagement, died in a few days, on which Carr courted his widow, and a marriage would have taken place, but that she was seized with a violent fever, which deprived her of life, but not before she had bequeathed him all she was possessed of. Having disposed of her effects, he repaired to London, where he commenced smuggler, but his ill-gotten goods being seized by the officers of the revenue, he took to the still more dangerous practice of forging seamen's wills, and gained money thus for some time. But, being apprehended, he was brought to trial at the Old Bailey, convicted, and was sentenced to die. He was of the Romish persuasion, and died with decent resignation to his fate. Carr was hanged at Tyburn on the 16th of November, 1750. Norman Ross, executed for murder. About the time at which this man met his most deserved punishment, the public journals teemed with accounts of the impudence and crimes of the party-coloured tribe of servants, denominated footmen. To such a daring pitch had their impudence arrived, that they created a riot at the theatre in Drury Lane, even in the presence of the heir apparent to the throne. One evening, when the Prince and Princess of Wales, the father and mother of King George the Third, attended the performance, these miscreants commenced a dreadful uproar. 
It was then the custom to admit servants in livery into the upper gallery gratis, in compliment to their employers, on whom they were supposed to be in attendance, and not content with peaceably witnessing the performance, they frequently interrupted those who had paid for admission, and assuming the prerogative of critics, hissed or applauded with the most offensive clamour. In consequence of these violent proceedings, the manager shut the door against them, unless they each paid their shilling. Upon an occasion when that part of the royal family, already mentioned, were present, they mustered in a gang, to the number of three hundred, broke open the doors of the theatre, fought their way to the very door of the stage, and in their progress wounded twenty-five peaceable people. Colonel de Vale, then an active magistrate for Westminster, happened to be present, and in vain attempted to read a proclamation against such an outrage, but though they obstructed him in his duty, he caused the ringleaders to be secured, and the next day committed three of them to Newgate. At the ensuing sessions they were convicted of the riot and sentenced to imprisonment. In the meantime, the collar of these upstarts was raised to such a pitch that they sent the following threat to the manager. To Mr. Fleetwood, in Lincoln's Inn Fields, Master of the Theatre, Drury Lane. Sir, we are willing to admonish you before we attempt our design, and, provided you use us civil, and admit us into our gallery, which is our property, according to formalities, and if you think proper to come to a composition this way, you'll hear no further, and if not, our intention is to combine in a body incognito, and reduce the playhouse to the ground, valuing no detection, we are indemnified. The manager carried this letter to the Lord Chamberlain, who ordered a detachment of fifty soldiers to do duty there each night, and thus deterred the saucy knaves from carrying their threats into execution. At the Edinburgh Theatre it was also a custom to admit men wearing the badge of servitude into the gallery gratis, and when Garrick's inimitable farce, High Life Below Stairs, wherein the waste and impudence of domestic servants of rich men is completely exposed, was performed there, a most violent clamour broke out in the gallery, so as entirely to interrupt the performance, and put the other part of the audience in fear of the consequences. The hardy Scotchmen, however, laid hold of the rioters, and kicked every footman, who alone were concerned, out of the house, where, without paying, they never more entered. Having thus referred to an evil which existed in 1751, and which even to this moment continues to exist to a considerable extent, namely the overbearing insolence of the fellows who usually fill the situations of domestic servants in the families of the rich, it is time to proceed to the history of the subject of this sketch. Ross was born of decent parents in Inverness, and received an education by which he would have been fitted to fill a situation in a merchant's counting-house. The difficulty in obtaining such employment, however, induced him to enter the service of a lady, who had always exhibited great kindness towards his family, and he soon afterwards accompanied her son to the continent, in the capacity of a valet de chambre. He continued in this situation during about five years, when he returned to Scotland, and was employed by an attorney in Edinburgh. But having contracted an intimacy among other servants, from their instruction he acquired all the fashionable habits of drinking, swearing, and gaming, and was dismissed on account of his impudence, and the irregularities of his conduct. He was subsequently engaged by a Mrs. Hume, a widow-lady of good fortune, whose residence during the summer was at Ayton, a village about four miles from Berwick-upon-Tweed. The extravagance of our hero, and an unfortunate intercourse which he had with a fellow-servant, 
soon compelled him to look for some other means of procuring money, besides that which was honestly afforded him by his mistress, and having exhausted the patience of his friends by borrowing from them repeatedly, he formed the resolution of robbing his employer. It would appear that Mrs. Hume slept in a room on the first floor, and that the keys of her bureau were usually placed under her head for safety. Sunday night was the time fixed upon for the commission of the robbery, and, waiting in his bedroom, without undressing himself till he judged the family to be asleep, he descended, and, leaving his shoes in the passage, proceeded to his lady's bedchamber. Upon his endeavouring to get possession of the keys, the lady was disturbed, and, being dreadfully alarmed, called for assistance, but the rest of the family, lying at a distant part of the house, her screams were not heard. Ross immediately seized a clasp-knife that lay on the table, and cut his mistress's throat in a most dreadful manner. This horrid act was no sooner perpetrated than, without waiting to put on his shoes, or to secure either money or other effects, he leapt out of the window, and after travelling several miles, concealed himself in a field of corn. In the morning the gardener discovered a livery hat, which the murderer had dropped in descending from the window and, suspecting that something extraordinary had happened, he alarmed his fellow-servants. The disturbance in the house brought the two daughters of Mrs. Hume downstairs, but no words can express the horror and consternation of the young ladies upon beholding their parent weltering in her blood, and the fatal instrument of death lying on the floor. Ross being absent, and his shoes and hat being found, it was concluded that he must have committed the barbarous deed, and the butler therefore mounted a horse, and alarmed the country, lest the murderous villain should escape. The butler was soon joined by great numbers of horsemen, and towards the conclusion of the day, when both men and horses were nearly exhausted through excessive fatigue, the murderer was discovered in a field of standing corn. He was immediately secured, and being brought to trial, he had the effrontery to declare that he was admitted to share his mistress's bed, and that his custom was always to leave his shoes at the parlour-door that on the night of the murder he proceeded as usual to her room, but on entering it his horror was aroused at discovering her to be murdered. He leapt out of the window to search for the perpetrators of the deed, and dropping his hat he thought it better not to return until night. Having been found guilty, he was sentenced to have his right hand chopped off, then to be hanged till dead, the body to be hung in chains, and the right hand to be affixed to the top of the gibbet, with the knife made use of in the commission of the murder. Upon receiving sentence of death, he began seriously to reflect on his miserable situation, and the next day he requested the attendance of Mr. James Craig, one of the ministers of Edinburgh, to whom he confessed his guilt, declaring that there was no foundation for his reflections against the chastity of the deceased. Six weeks elapsed between the time of his trial and that of his execution, during which he showed every sign of the most sincere penitence and refused to accompany two prisoners who broke out of jail, saying he had no desire to recover his liberty, but that, on the contrary, he would cheerfully submit to the utmost severity of punishment, that he might make atonement for his wickedness. The day appointed for putting the sentence of the law into force being arrived, Ross walked to the place of execution, holding Mr. Craig by the arm, having addressed a pathetic speech to the populace, and prayed some time with great fervency of devotion, the rope was put around his neck, and he laid his right hand upon the block, when it was struck off by the executioner at two blows. He was immediately afterwards run up to the gallows, when, feeling the rope drawing tight, 
by a convulsive motion of the arm he struck his bloody wrist against his cheek which gave it a ghastly appearance the sentence was subsequently fully carried into effect the execution took place on the eighth of january seventeen fifty one thomas colley executed for murder this offender was a victim to his own feelings of superstition at the time of his crime and execution the belief in witchcraft was almost universal, and Colley was hanged for the murder of a poor old woman named Osborne, whose qualities as a witch he tested by ducking her in a pond until she was dead, thereby indisputably proving to the satisfaction of all, and to the credit of the deceased woman, how unjustifiable were the suspicions which had been entertained of her character. The evidence given against the prisoner was to the following effect. On the 18th of April, 1751, a man named Nichols went to William Dell, the crier at Hemel Hempstead in Hertfordshire, and delivered to him a paper to the following effect which was to be cried. This is to give notice that on Monday next a man and woman are to be publicly ducked at Tring, in this county, for their wicked crimes. This notice was given at Winslow and Leighton Buzzard, as well as at Hemel Hempstead, on the respective market days, and was heard by Mr. Barton, overseer of the parish of Tring, who, being informed that the persons intended to be ducked were John Osborne and Ruth, his wife, and having no doubt of the good character of both the parties, sent them to the workhouse as a protection from the rage of the mob. On the day appointed for the practice of the infernal ceremony, an immense number of people, supposed to be not fewer than five thousand, assembled near the workhouse at Tring, vowing revenge against Osborne and his wife as a wizard and a witch, and demanding that they should be delivered up to their fury. In support of their demands they pulled down a wall belonging to the workhouse, and broke the windows and window-frames. On the preceding evening the master of the workhouse, suspecting some violence from what he heard of the disposition of the people, had sent Osborne and his wife to the vestry-room belonging to the church, as a place the most likely to secure them from insult. The mob would not give credit to the master of the workhouse that the parties were removed, but, rushing into the house, searched it through, examining the closets, boxes, trunks, and even the salt-box, in quest of them. There being a hole in the ceiling, which had been left by the plasterers, Colley, who was one of the most active of the gang, exclaimed, "'Let us search the ceiling!' And this being done, but of course without success, they swore that they would pull down the house, and set fire to Tring, if the parties were not produced. The master of the workhouse, apprehensive, that they would carry their threats into execution, and unmindful of the safety of the unfortunate wretches whom it was his duty to protect, at length gave up their place of concealment, and the whole mob, with Colley at their head, forthwith marched off to the church and brought them off in triumph. Their persons secured, they were carried to a pond called Marlston Mere, where they were stripped and tied up separately in cloths. A rope was then bound round the body of the woman, under her armpits, and two men dragged her into the pond, and threw it several times, Collie going into the pond, and with a stick, turning her from side to side. Having ducked her repeatedly in this manner, they placed her by the side of the pond, and dragged the old man in, and ducked him. Then he was put by, and the woman ducked again as before, Collie making the same use of his stick. With this cruelty the husband was treated twice over, and the wife three times during the last of which the cloth in which she was wrapped came off, and she appeared quite naked. Not satisfied with this barbarity, Colley pushed his stick against her breast, and the poor woman attempted to lay hold of it, 
but her strength being now exhausted, she expired on the spot. Colley then went round the pond, collecting money of the populace for the sport he had shown them in ducking the old witch, as he called her. The mob now departed to their several habitations, and the body being taken out of the pond was examined by Mr. Foster, a surgeon, and the coroner's inquest being summoned on the occasion, Mr. Foster deposed that, on examining the body of the deceased, he found no wound, either internal or external, except a little place that had the skin off on one of her breasts, and it was his opinion that she was suffocated with water and mud. Hereupon Collie was taken into custody, and when his trial came on, Mr. Foster deposed to the same effect as above mentioned, and there being a variety of other strong proofs of the prisoner's guilt, he was convicted and received sentence of death. His defence was that he had endeavoured to protect the old people from violence, instead of attempting to injure them. After conviction he seemed to behold his guilt in its true light of enormity. He became, as far as could be judged, sincerely penitent for his sins, and made good use of the short time he had to live in the solemn preparation for eternity. The day before his execution he was removed from the jail of Hartford, under the escort of one hundred men of the Oxford Blues, commanded by seven officers, and being lodged in the jail of St. Albans, was put into a chaise at five o'clock the next morning with the hangman, and reached the place of execution about eleven, where his wife and daughter came to take leave of him. The minister of Tring assisted him in his last moments, and he died exhibiting all the marks of unfeigned penitence. He was executed on the 24th of August, 1751, and his body afterwards hung in chains at a place called Gubblecut, near which the offence was committed. It is not a little remarkable that, at so recent a period, so many people as composed this mob should be found so benighted in intellect, and utterly uninformed, as to be guilty of so miserable and so glaring a piece of absurdity and wickedness as that which was proved in the evidence against the prisoner. In former ages, it is true, not only the people, but even the authorities of the land, believed in witchcraft and sorcery, but it is indeed extraordinary that in the eighteenth century a scene such as that described could have been permitted to occur at a village within thirty miles of the metropolis. The following copy of an indictment furnished us by a friend who took it from the American court record must prove a matter of curiosity to the reader at the present enlightened era. Essex a town in the colony of Massachusetts Bay, in New England. The jurors of our Sovereign Lord and Lady, the King and Queen, King William and Queen Mary, present, that George Burroughs, late of Falmouth, in the province of Massachusetts Bay, Clark, a Presbyterian minister of the Gospel, the ninth day of May, and divers other days and times, as well before as after, certain detestable arts called witchcraft and sorceries, wickedly and feloniously, hath used, practised, and exercised at, and in, the town of Salem, in the county aforesaid, upon and against one Mary Walcott, single woman, by which said wicked arts the said Mary, on the day aforesaid, and divers other days and times, as well before as after, was, and is, tortured, afflicted, pined, consumed, wasted, and tormented against the peace, etc. A witness, by the name Anne Putnam, deposed as follows. On the 8th of May, 1692, I saw the apparition of George Burroughs, who grievously tormented me, and urged me to write in his book, which I refused. He then told me that his two first wives would appear to me presently, and tell me a great many lies, but I must not believe them. 
then immediately appeared to me the forms of two women in winding-sheets and napkins about their heads at which i was greatly affrighted they turned their faces towards mr burroughs and looked red and angry and told him that he had been very cruel to them and that their blood called for vengeance against him and they also told him that they should be clothed with white robes in heaven when he should be cast down into hell and he immediately vanished away and as soon as he was gone the women turned their faces towards me and looked as pale as a white wall and told me they were mr burroughs two wives and that he had murdered them and one told me she was his first wife and he stabbed her under the left breast and put a piece of sealing-wax in the wound and she pulled aside the winding-sheet and showed me the place she also told me that she was in the house where mr darris the minister of danvers then lived when it was done and the other told me that mr burroughs and a wife that he hath now killed her in the vessel as she was coming to see her friends from the eastward because they would not have one another and they both charged me to tell these things to the magistrates before mr burroughs face and if he did not own them they did not know but they should appear this morning this morning also appeared to me another woman in a winding-sheet and told me that she was goodman fuller's first wife and mr burroughs killed her because there was a difference between her husband and him upon the above and some other such evidence was this unfortunate man condemned and executed the days are now happily past when such monstrous absurdities are heard of End of part 19